Hey, welcome to Access. John here. I felt convicted to issue out a message to all who are listening to these podcasts from home uh, that if you're not a part of Rungi First Baptist Church, that I am not your pastor and that these messages are designed to be a supplement to your daily walk with God, not a substitution for the church. I strongly encourage you to stay in fellowship with other believers through the local church, and if you're a part of Rungi FBC, then we can't wait to see you when you return. If you're ready to begin today's study, then turn to John chapter 17, verses 6 through 19, because this message is entitled, Guarded. Are you a risk taker, or do you typically play it safe? Now, I know the answer to that question really relies upon what I'm, I'm talking about risking, but um, where some people might take financial risks, most of us won't take risks when it comes to our lives. And that's because, although each of us is different, everyone likes to feel safe. Safety has become an obsession for many Americans. However, a good argument can be made for what that obsession costs us. Much of the time, our obsession with safety can cost us freedom. Uh, for example, the TSA, the, the Transportation Security Administration, they run travelers through security checks, something that can take hours in an airport, and it costs taxpayers $7 billion annually. Now, that isn't to say that the TSA doesn't do a good job and they haven't mitigated risk or that we shouldn't do that. All, all I'm trying to say is that our obsession with staying safe is expensive. If we really thought about playing it safe, we would see that there isn't really a safe place for us to be. Uh, if you want to be safe, well, then don't get behind the wheel of a car because that's where 20% of all fatal accidents in the world occur. Uh, you're not safe in your home. 17% of fatal accidents occur in the home. You're not safe walking down the road. 14% of fatal accidents happen to pedestrians. You're not safe on a plane, a train, or a boat. 16% of fatal accidents occur in the air, on the tracks, or on the water. Above all else, avoid the hospitals, because that's where 33% of all people die. Recently, we were reminded that not even uh, church is safe. We, we're not even safe within the four walls of the church. Although you might be surprised that even with the tragedy that happened at Sutherland Springs, only 0.001% of deaths occur in a worship service, and that's mostly due to health issues, not an active shooter. So even less occur, uh, less deaths occur in a Bible study, which means the safest place to be is in church studying our Bibles. So uh, Christians, we know, are not immune to safety concerns. We want to feel safe just like everyone else. In fact, we name the room in which we worship a sanctuary implying that it is the safest place to be. We love safety and the feeling that security brings us. However, because of our obsession with feeling safe, we are less inclined to allow our faith to be put to the test. In church finances, our desire for a safety net, something that is a good thing, can quickly become an excuse to not take necessary risks that come with ministry. Followers of Christ are called to be risk takers, and that's because Christ leads us into places that many would categorize as unsafe. Uh, two weeks ago, we began talking about John chapter 17, which is the only place in Scripture where we can read the actual words of Christ as he prayed to the Father in a prolonged prayer. And I mentioned how it's typically divided in three sections. Jesus prays for himself, Jesus prays for his disciples, and then Jesus prays for all his future disciples, that's you and me. Today, we're going to spend some time talking about the second of those three divisions, and, and talk about Jesus' specific words, his prayer for his 11 disciples. 
Now, uh, while it's a prayer for his remaining 11, there is much that we can glean from reading it, specifically what our role is in an unsafe world. So turn to your Bibles to John chapter 17. We're going to look at verses 6 through 19, and we're going to read about Jesus' concern for his 11 disciples, and then we'll talk about what his word means for us as his followers. So let's read John chapter 17, verses 6 through 9. He says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now that we have come to know everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me I have given to them, and they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on the behalf of the world but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And in all things that are mine are yours, and all yours are mine. And I have been glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you've given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished but the son of perdition, so that Scripture would be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have joy full in, in themselves. They have my joy made full in themselves. Excuse me. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves may also be sanctified in truth. Let's pray. Father God, as we've studied your word, and we've come to it through the context of wanting to feel safe. I pray, God, that you would just show us how we are most sanctified, that we are most safe in you, that you call us apart to be holy as you are holy. I pray, God, that you would just reveal yourself through these words that Jesus spoke and that we would see them as just that, the words of God. And, um, Father, I just pray that you would just enable us to understand what it is you need to communicate and that we might be ready to receive what it is that you have for us. We love you, Father, and I just pray, God, that you work in wondrous ways. And all these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In this passage, Jesus prays to the Father and says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. Now, the name of God is a profoundly important subject in Scripture, mostly because it's a mystery. Um, This is a topic that we must approach with humility and prayer for understanding. You see, the purpose of a name in Western culture is simply to identify. We use names to distinguish one person from another. And most of our parents choose names because they like the sound of them. Uh, we as parents either admired people with those names or we felt that they were uniquely uh, set apart enough for our children 
to be set apart from others. I've never heard of a uh, of a person being named Rubik's Cube, so I'm going to name my kid Rubik's Cube, and that's going to be you know, going to be unique. They're going to be special. Or maybe I really like Rubik's Cubes, and I'm going to name them after that. Our, the way that we name children is typically designed just for distinction. However, in biblical culture, names were chosen for their meanings. They often describe the experience of, of the parents. For example, Moses named his son Gershom, which means a stranger him, a stranger here. And he did this because he led the Israelites to a place that was foreign to them. And when his son was born, he was like, well, he's a stranger in this place. I'm going to name him Gershom, a stranger here. Some names were prophetic. Uh, for example, we know that the, the name Methuselah was prophetic in that it means judgment follows. I talked about this a couple of weeks ago. God promised to bring judgment upon the earth by bringing a flood and, and to destroy it, but he made a covenant with Methuselah's father, Enoch, not to destroy the world until his son had died. And so he names his son Methuselah, which again means judgment follows. Now the name of Jesus, or more accurately Yeshua in, in Hebrew, is prophetic as well. Yeshua means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. The name Jesus carries with it a promise that God would deliver his people from the bondage of sin through his son, Jesus Christ. So um, the name of God, uh, it, 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 we, we, we don't actually see the name of God in Scripture. We have to remember that. So what is Yahweh? In Exodus 3, Moses asked God to tell him his name so he can tell Pharaoh who sent him. So who should I say sent me? And God replies to Moses by saying, tell him I am that I am. And this response carries with it tremendous significance in that God was saying, I don't have a name. I am God. I am unique. Yeah, you name your little false gods, but I am the real God. And no name satisfies because there is no name to, that is sufficient to encompass my qualities and characters. No name could possibly hope to describe me. Human terminology, it cannot describe me accurately. And so the name Yahweh is a temporary measure that God gave Moses so that he himself, he can make himself manifest to be known to the world. Now, a side point here is kind of interesting, is if you look at the word Yahweh in Hebrew, um, that there are no vowels in it. It's simply spelled Y-H-W-H. They take the vowels out because the name of God is so holy, it's so set apart, that even a temporary word that we have for God shouldn't be written down. That's why you always see Yahweh without vowels. Yet here we see Jesus say that he has manifested the name of God to his disciples. Now this aligns with what Jesus told Peter, uh, excuse me, Philip in, in John chapter 14 whenever he said, He who has seen me has seen the Father. God cannot first be understood by name. God knew that he must first be seen in the flesh and then he can be understood in the spirit. That's why it requires prayer and humility to understand who God is and the name of God. What Jesus is saying in this passage is that the Father has cho chosen to make himself known to those whom he has chosen out of the world, specifically in this passage to the remaining 11 disciples. He says, they were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Well, isn't that a contradiction? I mean, did these men observe the law? Scripture tells us that Jesus is the only one who ever kept the law. 1 Peter 2.22 says, he committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. 1 John 3, 5, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. 
Yet his disciples, we know that they weren't sinless. So why would Jesus say, they have kept your word? I mean, we saw Simon Peter denied even knowing Christ just to save his own skin. That was a sin. I believe the next couple verses help to explain what Jesus meant when he said this. He says, now they have come to know that everything that you've given me is from you. For the, the words which you gave me, I gave to them. And they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. See, Jesus' reference to keeping God's word is a shorthand expression of the gospel. He's not saying that his disciples enjoyed every, or obeyed every jot of Mosaic law or that they had kept all the commandments that Jesus had given them. However, they had embraced the essential truth. They had come to see Jesus as the Messiah sent from God, and they put their faith in him. The same could be said for us. That if we are in Christ, it is because God has taken us out of the world and given us to Yeshua, to Jesus Christ. He has made manifested his word to us, and, and with the result uh, that the gospel now lives in us, that he is now in our hearts. Jesus continued his prayer by asking that the work that he had begun in his disciples be carried to completion. He says, I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine. And I have been glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and and I have come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are. Now, as Jesus was about to leave earth, He asked that that God, the Father, would keep his disciples and his name. And what we see here is a strange relationship between Christians, followers of Christ, and the rest of the world. We are called to be in the world, but not of the world. And this is a huge distinction from being a person not of the world, not in the world. And I'm sure you've met a Christian who, who seemed to check out from reality. I like to refer them to, to them as being oversaved. But this is essentially the kind of person that uh, lives his or her life completely isolated geographically and emotionally from the rest of the world. People like this, however, do not do anything for the name of Christ but repel others from becoming Christians themselves. We see sometimes we get things twisted and think that in order for our lives to be a good testimony uh, to, to God, that we need to isolate ourselves from what we call, quote, sinners. And we commonly see stepping outside the four walls of the church as taking a risk. But we incorrectly see sin as coming from out there instead of what Scripture teaches from within. Jesus says it's not not the, the food that you put into your mouth that makes you unclean. It's the things that comes out of your mouth. It's the things that comes out of your heart. It's the expression of your heart. Uh, Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? It is It is... Our fear that, you know, if we step outside the four walls of the church and we actually minister to people, that we're at risk, uh, you know, that we could become sinners again and we fall into sin because we see sin as coming from out in the world. We protect our children. Oh, you don't need to know about this, you know, because that's sinful and we, we got to keep you protected from that and shelter you from sin. But we, if we were to actually teach what Scripture teaches, and that, that is that, that, that sin comes from within our hearts. That you don't have to be out in the world. You can be safe inside your sanctuary and still be guilty of sin. 
Sin that you probably didn't see coming. And so out of fear and insecurity, we as a church can choose to isolate ourselves from sinners. But think about this. If anyone should have been isolated from the world, it should have been God. Yet, he sent us his son, not to be of the world, but to be in the world. And this this is a hard thing to determine, and sometimes it's tricky. But Jesus passed that mantle on to his disciples. And when God enables us to surrender to Christ, we are transformed and no longer belong to the world. We are not, however, removed from our responsibility to minister to the world in which we used to belong. See, as God calls us out of the world, he will use us to call others out of the world as well. This simply cannot happen if we isolate ourselves from others because we are insecure about what God has done in us. Listen, Scripture is clear. Our sin is removed from us as far as the East is from the West. We have to conquer this fear that we could do something that would cause us to lose our salvation because otherwise we would be taking a risk. And who wants to risk that? This doesn't mean that we should throw all caution in the wind and, and, and go out there and live for ourselves. No, it simply means that, that in that the moment that we enter into his presence and surrender our lives over to him, that God is responsible for finishing the good work that he has begun in us. That's why Jesus prays that his father would keep his disciples. So let's put it this way. If you have salvation, if you are truly reborn and have saving faith, the saving faith of your soul, then you will have it forever. Because if you have it, you can never lose it. If you seemingly lost it, well, then you never really had it. Of course, we never find the phrase perseverance of the saints in Scripture, but that's what this is. Instead, we find the idea of keeping We are being protected. We are being preserved. God is keeping us. Jesus prays the Father would keep his disciples through the power of his name. Keep them. Don't release them. Don't let them go. Hold on to them. Jesus also expressed the desire that disciples may be one as we are one. Now, I know the argument can be made that in today's churches, unity will never be possible. According to the Hartford Institute of Religious Research, there are over 35,000 independent or non-denominational churches in the United States. 35,000. We we have a hard time getting Baptist churches to agree. How in the world are we going to unite 35,000 different denominations? How can we possibly have unity when we don't agree with each other over important doctrinal differences? Well, what we need to see is that this prayer for unity that Christ is praying, it has already been completed. Jesus prays that that his disciples would be one, his followers would be one, as he is one with the Father. This, this is a prayer for unity, yes. But Jesus prays that everyone who is in him, might be united with the Father. And everyone who is in Christ is in union with the Father. And therefore, if we are in union with him, then we are in union with one another. There is a spiritual unity of all the saints, that we are with each other as the Father is with the Son. Not by our practices, not by our doctrines, but by the spiritual unity that was established by the Holy Spirit when we are saved. 
And while we're on the subject, I'd like to say that, that unity between the churches is important. Yes, uh, yes, we, we still have division. No, we will not completely agree. But the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1.10, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you may be made complete in the same mind and the same judgment. How is this possible? The only way we could hope to accomplish this is to lose our opinions about what God and, and Jesus and the Scripture actually says. We must surrender our opinions about these things and surrender to what it actually says. Scripture is our reference point for unity. And the only way that we're going to be united is to surrender to the authority of Scripture and ask God to enable us to let go of our opinions and show us the truth of His Word, which is why Jesus said, sanctify them in truth. Jesus says, while I was with them, I was keeping them. I was protecting them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that Scripture would be fulfilled. This is one of those things that we have to lose our opinion about and surrender to what Scripture actually says. I don't want to spend too much time on this because we have several other important verses to cover, but there is something important to be found in these words. Something that I found that is helpful to understanding these verses is to see that Jesus, while he was on earth, he was fulfilling the role for his disciples that the Holy Spirit now fills with us. He, he says he kept them, he guarded them, but now he's asking the Father to keep them and guard them until the Holy Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost to take that responsibility from the Father. Jesus refers to Judas as the son of perdition. It's a terminology that means one doomed for, for destruction. It's important that we see this too, that Jesus says Judas was doomed for destruction so that Scripture would be fulfilled. The fact that Judas walked away from Christ and betrayed him in the hands of those who would crucify him is not a failure on the behalf of Jesus' part, but it was foreseen and preordained in Scripture. We have all our opinions about God, and, and to surrender to say, well, the Judas was set up for destruction. That's why he was created. That really causes us to question the goodness of God. God, knowing all things, however, interwove Jesus' betrayal into his plan for redemption. And so we could say, well, well Judas was never given the chance. Well, I don't like that, and so I choose not to believe that. But this is just a perfect example of how we have to surrender to what scripturally actually says. That yes, we struggle with the goodness of God. If you weren't struggling with that, then you don't truly comprehend that what this passage is saying. Jesus fulfilled the role of the Holy Spirit in the lives of his disciples. But look what he says in verse 13. He says, but now I come to you. And these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and your world, and the world has hated them. And because they are not of this world, even as I am not of this world, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. The implication of this verse is so important. It echoes what Paul says in Romans 8, 29. For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed in, in the image of his sons, that, that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. 
Remember, what was God doing before the before he created the world? Ephesians 1, 4, and 5. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Christ Jesus and according with his pleasure and will. He did it because he wanted to. He chose us. And Jesus said the world hates believers because they do not belong to the world. Just as the world loved darkness and hated Christ, so the world will hate us because Jesus said we are the light of the world. The light exposes what's in the dark. Notice Jesus said in verse 15, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. And I cannot tell you how often I have felt like I don't want to be here anymore. When I get a healthy dose of all the brokenness, of all the sin, of all the suffering, with all of the drug abuse and the horrible sins that are committed against children, with the people being taken advantage of, with organizations that seek to to take advantage and destroy others, with all the broken lives and the broken hearts, I am disgusted. I feel crippled. It makes me feel helpless when I begin to take in all of the evil in the world. And it's so overwhelming that I don't want to be here anymore. I hate feeling helpless in a a world that is hell-bent on doing wrong. It disgusts me. It wounds me to know that not only what others have done, but the sins that I have committed too. What I have contributed to an evil world. But I know that I'm a new creation. However, I also am reminded of who I once was. Satan whispers lies into my ears. He reminds me who I have been, who I fear I am capable of becoming again. And and it makes me want to just give up and walk away. Yet the Holy Spirit reminds me that not only has God redeemed me, knowing that I was a sinner, while I was a sinner, sinner, Christ died for me. The Holy Spirit also reminds me that God has not released me from ministering to those who are broken and lost. Yes, I will feel overwhelmed. But when I feel overwhelmed, it's because I'm not not saturating myself in Him. Jesus prayed that the Father would protect us from Satan, His attacks and His lies. And we have to see that that is exactly what the Holy Spirit is is busy at work doing. He's protecting us. Not only the Holy Spirit, but in, in, in the last part of Hebrews chapter 1, we see that, that angels are protecting those whom God has chosen out of the world. That is their role and function that they protect us. The Father is protecting us from Satan. We don't have to examine Every single lie that Satan is going to tell us, we simply learn the truth so that we can know what a lie is. Which is why Jesus said, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. We've all had experiences that shape our beliefs about God. Much of the time we're unwilling to let go of our beliefs and our opinions about God because what our experiences tell us, that they were so raw and maybe so horrible that we feel like if we were to let go of those things that we believe about God, that we have no explanation for those experiences. Sometimes we hold on to our beliefs because they help us feel safe. 
But we have to see that much of what our experiences teach us about God aren't true. While it's, it, it, it's troubling for me to try to wrap my mind around this, there are things that I believe about God that simply are not true. And if I knew what they were, I would leave them behind, get rid of them. What if we believe, what, 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 what do we believe about God that, that isn't true? And how do we let go of those? How do we explain what we experienced? Let me say it this way. Our experiences are flawed and that we aren't able to see everything that is going on. I had one of my best friends die in a car accident not even a week after I surrendered my life to Christ. If my experience was teaching me anything, it was to not trust God. Because if I'd surrendered everything over to him, yet he didn't spare me from the pain that I was afraid of, what good is he? That's what my experience was teaching me. But see, I had studied enough of God's word to know what truth is. Let me put it this way. I love reading murder mysteries. Um, but in a murder mystery, you know, you have all of the evidence presented at the beginning. You just don't have all the context of what how that evidence fits in. So when you get to the, the end of the book, you go, oh, well, it was right there the whole time. That's what our experience teaches us. That we don't know everything that's going on. And I believe that God will make all things known. In fact, Scripture tells us that every secret thing, Jesus said every secret thing whispered in the hidden room will, will be brought to light. God will explain it. So we can't rely on our experiences to teach us about God. We must rely on His Word, which is why Jesus said, sanctify them in truth. The word sanctified means to be made holy, to be set apart from the world with truth. Much of the time when we give our, our lives to Christ, we imagine our new lives in Christ being different from the world. And to, to a degree, we are. But not in the way we often act. We aren't any more or any less religious than the people in the world. You say, well, what are you talking about? Let me tell you something. Re the people are religious by nature. It's just in what they worship. We don't consider things like football and sports to be a religion. We don't consider things like atheism to be a religion, but I tell you it is because we have practices that we do. We are not any more or less religious than the world. We're not above sinning. We're not beyond falling into temptation. If we are separated from the world, it's simply in this, that we know the truth, we've had it revealed to us, and they haven't yet. We know not because we're super duper smart, but because God has revealed it to us. I asked you earlier if you're the type of person that takes risk or if you play, commonly play it safe. What we need is to have the Father reinforce that there is still risk involved in being a believer. There's still a risk of failure. There's still a risk of exposing our hypocrisy. There's still a risk of falling into sin. There's still a risk of losing our lives. And yes, that can be scary. The fear of these very real possibilities can cause us to want to isolate ourselves. Yet what we need, what we really need protection from, it has already been provided. If we are in Christ, our eternal security has been delivered. There is no risk involved with losing our salvation and spend eternity, spending eternity in hell. God is keeping us in his word. He's keeping us in his name because we have believed in his son. We have kept his word and we have believed in him. Now it's important that we settle on this truth because God has called us to be set apart from the world. 
We are set apart, not taken out. And what that means is that we don't live our lives in fear of a God who will strike us down if we sin against him. First, First John 4, 18 says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. There is incredible freedom in Scripture to be the people, to be the church that God has called us to be. We don't need to isolate ourselves from the world of sin by pretending to be holy and above reproach. We don't need to communicate that we don't struggle with with fear and sin anymore. We're still afraid. We still sin. But that doesn't do anything to the kingdom of God. When we take precautions to protect ourselves from the world, it just costs us the freedom to be be the people who God has called us to be. People don't need to see how holy we are. They need to see how healed we are. The consequences of sin, it has devastated our lives. It's left us broken, empty shells, yet the healing that only comes to the person of Jesus Christ has restored us. God has redeemed us. He has sanctified us. He has set us apart. He is conforming us into the image of Christ. And I know it's like what it's like sitting in a, in a pew listening to the opinions of a preacher. I know, I know what it's like to completely disagree with what the preacher is saying, but I hope that you see that the things I've been telling you are not my opinions and beliefs. They are simply what Scripture teaches us. I pray today that we that I have spoken the truth because that's what we need. I've heard it said a good friend will tell us the truth even when we don't want to hear it. Well, a godly friend will teach you how to be set apart by the truth. A godly friend will show you how to live in the world that is hostile to the truth because they don't agree with the truth. A godly friend will do these things. Well, oh, what a godly friend we have in Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. He has sent us into this world as he was sent, urging us to study the truth that our joy may be made full. We are holy because we are united with Christ. Let us pray for God to bring healing in us that the world so desperately needs to see. Let us not try to stay safe all the time, but let us instead be sanctified in truth. Hey, thanks again for listening. We pray that God blessed you through this message and has given you a clear direction for your life. Please remember to download our church app by searching FBC Rungi in Google Play or iTunes. And remember to subscribe to our podcast so that you never miss another message. If you have any questions about today's message, you can contact us via Facebook or Twitter or use our website. Until then, we hope that you share in our vision to help people take root, grow, and bear fruit. And if so, then let's get out there and get to work.